brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people. Lean, mean, and trying not to get crushed by the big machine. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And it's no surprise that the history of European expansion was a violent and bloody one that used and abused almost any indigenous culture that they came across. But outside of those broad statements, the details of that systematic steamroll are typically glossed over. And if little uncomfortable truths can be skimmed past and downplayed, they usually are. But that mistreatment of the other expands much further than we might think, because the genocide of Native Americans and the use of African slaves are not isolated incidents. And when you consider the expansion of the American empire and the forgotten territories around the globe that it does or has controlled, the disenfranchised are not a distant, uncomfortable memory. They're essentially a staple of how the American empire has and currently does still operate. Well, folks, it is these neglected colonies and territories that are the offerings in the higher side table today, as they are also the subject of the latest book by today's guest, Daniel Emmervar, entitled How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States, where he relays interesting aspects of history that don't often make it into the school books and details our complicated relationship with areas like Guam, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guantanamo Bay, and the Philippines, just to name a few. If you're unfamiliar with Daniel, he is a scholar of U.S. and global history, specializing in empire, development, and the history of ideas, currently working as associate professor of the history department at Northwestern University, but he's also taught at Berkeley, Columbia, and San Quentin State Prison. So let's do the damn thing. The empire educator, forgotten history highlighter, and advocate for the often forgotten, Daniel, my man, welcome to the higher side. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Hey, this is a real treat, man. Thanks for doing it. I loved your book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States, and the audience knows I've been searching for something like this for a while now because these are the sorts of stories and situations that I like to highlight here, the general abuses of empire and the big machine, but to fit so much of it in one book is really great to see. To get this thing going, What can you tell us about the genesis of this book and why you felt it was such an important one to write? Yes. So I 
have been teaching U.S. history for a while. And I taught it at Berkeley, and I taught it, as you said, at San Quentin at the prison. And I taught it the way that most people teach it. It was so standard that I could be sick for a day and say, uh, can you cover me? We're doing the Gilded Age. And someone else could come in and they would pick up right where I'd left off. There's a kind of way that we know how to teach that. And that's fine. And that's good. We work collectively. Historians have figured out the story for a while. We all kind of talk about it. And then I was doing some research about something else. And I went to, in the course of that research, I went to Manila in the Philippines. And I was just struck by the place. And there's a lot to see there. But one thing that really surprised me was I thought, my God, it just feels so familiar in a family resemblance kind of way. So I would see streets that were named after U.S. presidents, you know, like up to Eisenhower. I would board um, the transit system, which is based on surplus U.S. Army jeeps. I would go to the university there, the Ateneo de Manila University, and, and I would hear people speaking English with an accent that wasn't too different from my Pennsylvanian accent. And look, I'd known that the Philippines had been a colony of the United States. I totally knew that. I had a PhD in U.S. history. I could not be accused of not knowing that. But I think there's a difference between knowing something and knowing it, like really getting it and fully understanding the implications. And I would say that I didn't really know it in that second sense. I didn't really think about it a lot. But when you're there standing on a street corner in Manila between like Washington and Madison Street, it's hard not to think about that a little more. And I got back and I realized that the way I'd been teaching U.S. history wasn't quite right. Because, you know, I'd make fleeting mention to the Philippines in 1898 when it's acquired. And then I would talk about a war and then it just disappeared from my story. And it wasn't just the Philippines. Like, where was Hawaii? Where was Guam? Where was Puerto Rico? And, you know, I was telling U.S. history, but I realized that what I was doing was just telling the history of the states or the territories that became states. And there's this whole other part of the United States that wasn't in that story, that wasn't in that narrative. So my goal here in writing this book was to tell U.S. history, but where the United States isn't just the states or future states alone, it's the whole thing, what some people at the turn of the 20th century called the greater United States. Mm. Well said. Yes, we know the bullet points to a lot of this stuff, but the depth of those bullet points and their implications are just not sat with often enough. And of course, this is an audio show, so we don't have the visual component of the book or your previous presentations that I've seen. But I wanted to ask you about maps, because even though the U.S. controls or did control a lot of these places, they don't make it on the maps as they should. And that's a bigger deal than people might think. Talk to us about the typical U.S. map and really the psychological effects that can come from how they're made and displayed. Greg, I wake up every morning hoping that someone is going to ask me about maps. And, huh. you know, usually I'm disappointed, but today's a good day. And I want to thank you for that. Yeah, that's Cheers. right. Uh, maps, you know, the visual representation of the country turns out to be really important. And if you ask most people in the United States or most people in the world to map this country in their heads, just to call to mind what they think it looks like, there's a familiar shape that's going to come to mind. And you know that shape. It's the contiguous blob, the thing that is suspended between Canada and Mexico and the oceans. And, you know, a lot of people know they're like, oh, wait, Alaska and Hawaii are part of it, too. But that's usually how it looks to people. And then that becomes the shape of U.S. history. U.S. history is what happens within that map, maybe with Alaska and Hawaii after they become states. But look, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I studied history. I studied history in college. 
At no point did I see a map of the United States that had Puerto Rico on it. And I should have. Mm. Puerto Rico has been part of the United States for more than a century. Why isn't Puerto Rico on the map? So I found myself, as I was writing this book, realizing that I wasn't trying to rewrite U.S. history. I was also trying to remap the United States. And I had to learn how to make maps. And then I like went back and I was like, okay, this is a map. as you've seen it? This is a map as it should look. And as I did that, I found that I was surprising myself that the United States looks different. Once you've got it all mapped out correctly with equal area projections, you realize like how much land in the United States has not been part of the states or future states. Right. And the amount of people that are in these outside territories is quite large and surprising. I would have thought, obviously, they're inhabited, but I guess I just didn't realize to what extent because you've talked about kind of the the numbers. And it's a little shocking that at periods of the past, I believe maybe, was it one in eight people who were under the umbrella of the empire were actually outside of the continuous blob? Yeah, no, that's right. So when I was preparing the book and talking with editors, we had a cover designer. And I said to the publishers, it's important on the cover to see these other parts of the United States, places that don't always make it onto the maps. And, you know, cover design is a tricky business. How do you show that? Do you actually show them in map form or what? And one of the early drafts was of the Philippines and American Samoa and Guam and Puerto Rico. And they were all represented as little like New Yorker style islands with one palm tree coming up from them. And, you know, I think that's an image that's pretty common. I think that usually to the degree that people in the United States who are living in the U.S. mainland and not in these places acknowledge that, oh, yeah, there's Guam. Yeah, of course, Guam is also a place. The U.S. Virgin Islands, that's right. Yeah, they also exist. Usually the assumption is that these are really small places, just little tiny geographical crumbs, and so small that, yeah, they're there, but they're footnotes. You don't have to think about them very hard, except sometimes you read a news article, but it's not important. It's not central to You can tell the story of the United States without those footnotes in them. You can tell the story of the United States without Guam. And I would say two things to that. One is, just what you said. It turns out that the overseas territories of the United States actually have been quite populous. And so in 1940, which is about the peak of the United States' colonial empire, if you add up everyone who's living in the overseas territories, so outside of the states, you get nearly 19 million people. And just as you said, that's one in eight people who live in the United States. So if you live somewhere in the United States, not just a state, you might live in the Philippines, there's a one in eight chance that you're doing that because you're colonized. And just to be clear about that scope of those numbers, that means that if you live in the United States in 1940, you're more likely to be colonized than you are to be African-American. That's how many colonized people there are in the country. It also means that if you live in the United States in 1940, you're more likely to be colonized than you are to be an immigrant. That's how many colonized people there are. That's a huge population. The other thing that you can say in response to this notion that the Guams of the country are just footnotes, is that it's not just that a lot of people live in these places. It's that a lot of stuff happens in these places. It turns out that a lot of U.S. history takes place in the periphery, in these places that are marginal, that are hard to see from the perspective of the mainland. Wars start there. Presidents sort of get, you know, crucial experience there. Important medicines are tested there. Places that are different and that have different kind of laws or different kind of spaces turn out to be really useful to the United States to the point where it's actually hard to explain U.S. history without the Philippines as part of the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, depictions are so influential and often they don't match the reality. I've actually heard about the psychological effects of just the traditional world map talked about, where the world, of course, is a globe, but the map we know has Europe and America featured prominently on top, and the sizes are also warped to make them look bigger and not so dwarfed in size by Africa as the reality would show. And it's just crazy to think about the implications of that, because... They seem like small details, but they just inform our entire worldview in some cases. Yeah, and just that phrase you used, worldview, I mean, that's a visual metaphor right there. We think that way, and the thing that helps us think that way is the picture of the world, is the map. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so to jump to a particular chapter of history that you talk about early on in the book, I was really surprised how little I knew about the events of what we call Pearl Harbor. We know it as an attack on Hawaii, but we're missing a lot. As you say, a lot of U.S. history happens in these unincorporated areas, and Pearl Harbor is a great example of that, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great. And so Pearl Harbor is such a key moment in U.S. history. I think if you were to ask people in the country, which historical events do they know by date? So not just the year that they happened, but literally the date. I think you'd probably only get three. So July 4th, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the September 11th attacks in 2001, and then the other one, the date which will live in infamy, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. But here's the thing. Despite how important Pearl Harbor is to every telling of U.S. national history, usually when it gets told, it gets told, I wouldn't say wrong, but in a really misleading and a confusing way. So the story as I was taught it was... Japan attacked the United States at the Pearl Harbor Naval Base in Hawaii. It did great damage that pulled the United States into World War II. And it was a tragedy. And it was also the only time that U.S. soil was attacked in the war. That's the story as I knew it. Here's what I wasn't hearing, which is within hours, Japan also attacked Wake Island, Guam, and the Philippines. And then meanwhile, it also attacked the British colonies of Hong Kong and Malaya and the independent kingdom of Thailand. This wasn't just an attack on Pearl Harbor. This was a sort of sweep the leg attack on European empires in the Pacific because Japan was trying to take other people's colonies. That's what it was trying to do. And the Philippines is particularly important in this regard because the Philippines is, first of all, the largest colony that the United States has. Hawaii is an overseas territory, not a state at this point. So is the Philippines. And the army says that the damage done, the military damage done to the United States in the Philippines was as great as that done to the U.S. military in Hawaii. But there's one really important difference, which is that Hawaii was attacked, but that was it. It was attacked at Pearl Harbor. It wasn't attacked again. And then the war ensued. The Philippines got attacked. It got attacked again. It got invaded. It got occupied. And for the bulk of the war, the Philippines, along with Guam and Wake Island, and actually, this happened a little later, part of Alaska became occupied Japanese territory and endured a brutal war as they were under Japanese colonial rule. And the war in the Pacific, particularly the Philippines, we think killed more than a million Filipinos. That's more than a million U.S. nationals who die. And that just, you don't even hear about that because Hawaii was the only part of U.S. soil that was struck. Yeah, it's so interesting. And right, the numbers 1.1 million Filipinos estimated or even 1.6 overall when you consider all the deaths that were involved in, right. in this area. And that's, as you say, 
the death toll twice that of the Civil War. Yeah, that's two civil wars. That's the bloodiest thing that's ever happened in U.S. history by far. And, you know, if you look in U.S. history textbooks, you might not see it at all. Because despite the fact that it's the bloodiest thing that ever happened on U.S. soil, there's a confusion in textbooks about what exactly U.S. soil is and what places count and what places don't. And that is really conditioned frankly, by who lives in those places. So Filipinos are U.S. nationals, but there's a persistent sense during the colonial period and frankly after that Filipinos, despite being U.S. nationals, despite coming under the U.S. flag, despite having the president as their commander in chief, were never really, didn't really count as Americans. And therefore, when you tell the story about the United States, you don't really have to talk about the Philippines because it's just, yes, technically it's part of the country, but it's not really part of the country. And if you're telling the history of the United States, you don't need the Philippines as part of that story. Right. It is very sad that, I mean, the people who write the history books, I guess they assume, hey, the book can only be so long. Let's just leave out the brown people entirely. And that's uh, no way to record history. And the way that Roosevelt crafted his speech or his address to the people after the attack I think that probably has a lot to do with how we perceive the events of that day. Why do you think he made the choices that he did? This story is incredible. So first of all, no one knows what to call the attack, right? Because it happened in a lot of different places and it's very confusing and people don't know how to describe it. Now we have a descriptor. We just say Pearl Harbor and then you know what we mean and that's that. But people didn't have that description back then. It took days for the first newspaper to describe the event, to give the name to the event, and the name was Pearl Harbor. You can see newspaper editors like trying to figure out what to call it, trying to figure out what to say. The Japanese attacked Hawaii and Guam, like one paper has it. The Japanese attacked the Philippines and Hawaii. It's really not clear which target deserves more emphasis. Eleanor Roosevelt gave a speech before FDR's speech, and that's what she said. She said, this is an attack on our citizens in Hawaii and the Philippines. And that's actually how FDR had initially drafted his speech. When he was describing the targets, he said, this is an attack on Hawaii and the Philippines. And then this really wild thing happens. And we know this because we have his first draft and we have his next draft and we have all of his successive drafts. And then we have his like handwritten notes where he'll cross things out and write things in. And what you can see FDR doing over the course of hours is crossing out prominent references to the Philippines and making the attack on Hawaii alone. There is still a reference later in the back part of the speech to the Philippines, but it's reference to all the targets, and it's not clear which ones are British and which ones are U.S. and which ones are foreign and which ones are not. But the speech, as you know it, is a speech about an attack on Hawaii. It's a speech that Japan attacked the United States at Hawaii. And then so you have this question of why? What was going through FDR's mind? I think it's this issue of what really counts as the United States or not. We have opinion polls from the time that suggest that people in the United States were really reluctant to see the U.S. military be used to defend the Philippines. It didn't really count as part of the country in their thinking. Hawaii was a territory too, and even there, it was kind of wobbly, but Hawaii had significantly larger number of white people. It wasn't white majority, but it, it, it had a lot of white people in it. And I think that made it easier for FDR and for his audience to conceive of Hawaii as American, as U.S. soil. Even after the speech, it was a little, you know, you can see sort of waverings as people are trying to talk about Hawaii. Does it really count? Is it foreign? Is it domestic? But nevertheless, it was the closest thing to, quote unquote, America, I think that FDR could imagine. And so he, you know, rounded Hawaii up to America and then just thought, I'm not going to push it with the Philippines. It's too difficult for my audience. Mm. 
That makes a lot of sense, and it is a fascinating story. And it's weird to think about the fact that Hawaii and Alaska became states in 1959. I mean, my mom was 17. I guess I never considered how recent that really is. As you talk about in the book, people were all kind of clamoring for their suggested flag, but it was unknown if if Alaska and Hawaii would both become states, or maybe just one, or even Puerto Rico was being considered at that time to some degree. And I guess I would ask why you think Puerto Rico didn't make the cut. Of course, you mentioned it wasn't wide enough. Were there any other factors besides that, or was that kind of the, the key unfortunate one? Yes. Yeah, so of the overseas territories, Alaska and Hawaii become states. Puerto Rico never becomes one. Guam never becomes one. The Philippines becomes independent. American Samoa is not a state. Uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands isn't. And then so you have this question, right? Why some and not others? What's going on here? Population maybe is part of it, but it can't be the full explanation because Hawaii and Alaska are not the most populated of the overseas territories. Maybe it helps that Alaska is continentally connected, even though if it's not contiguous with the United States or with the U.S. mainland. I think the best explanation really is who lives in these places and who has lived in them in the 20th century. Hawaii and Alaska, unlike all of the other overseas territories, have been significant sites for white settlements, where white people have moved en masse to Hawaii and to Alaska, enough to make a sizable dent in the population and enough to, at various points, have control over politics. They don't have full control over it, and certainly not in Hawaii today. But nevertheless, that's like the magic dust that has always turned territories into states. And it's not just Hawaii and Alaska. The whole history of U.S. continental expansion within North America, there's been this vexed question of when can territories become states? And yet again, the answer has almost always been when they have enough white people in them. Hawaii and Alaska are kind of limit cases of that. They've never totally had full white settlement enough to sort of swamp the you know, indigenous populations, or in the case of Hawaii, the immigrant populations. But nevertheless, they've had a lot of white population influxes, and that's been the thing that's allowed them to become states. Mm -hmm. Man. And so to read from your book jacket, it says, in How to Hide an Empire, Daniel Emmervar reveals that overseas possessions, while often neglected, have played an essential role in America's story enabling its rise, testing its ideals, and serving as laboratories and launch pads for critical and sometimes harmful innovations. And it is that last part I wanted to get into. What can you tell us about this Harvard-trained, Rockefeller-funded fella, Cornelius Rhodes, and his troubling work in Puerto Rico? Yeah, Cornelius Rhodes time. All right, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, so Cornelius Rhodes is a doctor. He's trained in Harvard, and he's part of a group of doctors that are interested in studying anemia. A lot of people in Puerto Rico suffer from anemia, and so he goes there in the 1930s, and it's really interesting what happens when he goes there, and it's really telling what happens when he goes there, because when Cornelius Rhodes hits the islands, he becomes a different kind of doctor. It's like Cornelius Rhodes unshackled or unplugged or something like that. Whatever restraints he felt as a doctor previously in his career just seemed to evaporate. And because he's got patients who he has a different kind of relationship with, he's not the only doctor to have this sense of unshackling, but he's a sort of big case of it. And so he just goes nuts. He does everything that you've always feared that doctors secretly wanted to do if they didn't care about patients. So 
he has some patients who are suffering from anemia that he can treat and he refuses to treat them just because he wants to see what's going to happen to them. He has other patients in whom he tries to induce disease and does induce disease just, again, to see what's going to happen. And then he writes a letter. And it is one of the most jaw-dropping letters I've ever, historical sources that I've ever read. He's writing to a colleague, to a Boston colleague. And it starts off as like really chatty letter. You know, I can't believe this guy got the job. He's such a jerk. You know, how are things in Boston? I hope you're well. Here I am in Puerto Rico. It's beautiful. You know, the island is gorgeous. And everything would be great here except the Puerto Ricans. And then he just like goes off. Like they're the worst. They're lazy. They're thievish. They're worse than the Italians. My job here is public health, but frankly, I think the island would be better served by having them exterminated. And at this point, you're just like, oh my God, where is this going? And even still, you don't expect where it actually goes, which is he then says, I've killed eight of my patients. I've murdered eight of my patients. He doesn't say murdered, but I've killed eight of my patients. And I'm trying to transplant cancer into others. Fingers crossed, no luck yet. Doctors just torture their patients here. That's what we do. It works out well. Hope you're doing well back in Boston. You know, basically, give my best to the missus. Yours sincerely, Cornelius Rhodes. It is like, you don't even know what to make of a letter like this as a historian. And historians have argued, was he serious? Was he not? I mean, what we do know about Cornelius Rhodes from his own admissions, not just a letter, but from his like published articles, is that he quite clearly treated Puerto Ricans as experimental animals in an island-sized laboratory. That was his basic attitude. Whether he killed him or not, and we can get into that, the letter leaks. The Puerto Rican staff at the hospital find the letter and they start circulating it and they freak out, which understandably, because they think their boss is murdering people in their hospital and murdering them out of racial hatred. And is he going to murder me next? This is a serious and legitimate concern to have. And Cornelius Roach flees the island, goes back to New York, and two things happen. And both of them are really interesting. First of all, it becomes a huge deal on the island, and it's certainly not the only thing that spurs the Puerto Rican nationalist independence movement, but it's a big thing. And nationalists, including this guy Pedro Albizu Campos, are able to point to the letter and be like, look, we told you, these colonialists actually want us dead. They are not here to help, and we need independence, otherwise they're going to kill us all. And we've got the letter to show it. So that's one thing that happens. You know, when it becomes a big issue on the island, the mainland appointed white governor investigates, and then he sort of Apparently, he says in another letter that he found yet another letter by Cornelius Rhodes that was worse than the first one. It was so bad. He's like, I can't even imagine what a letter would be that would be worse than that one. But the government suppressed it. We still don't have it today. We don't know what it looks like because it seems like the governor or someone acting on his behest destroyed the evidence. And on the basis of this investigation, Cornelius Rhodes, even though he was not even there, wasn't even tried, was found to not have murdered anyone. That's one thing that happens. It becomes an enduring issue in Puerto Rican politics. People return to it again and again. It's just like a thing you remember. Of course it is, because it's like totally nuts. A, that it happened, and B, that there was just this kind of trial that didn't seem really serious, and that he just got away with it. The other part of it is what happens to Cornelius Rhodes. He goes back to the mainlands, goes to New York, doesn't get fired. Can you imagine? Like, even if the letter is a joke, even if he didn't kill it, doesn't get fired. And you know what? It's fine. Mm. He becomes the vice president of the New York Academy of Medicine. When World War II starts, he becomes a colonel. And worse, when World War II starts, he becomes a colonel in the chemical warfare service. He's got a very high-ranking job. His job is being the medical officer overseeing these tests that the Army wants to run of poison gas 
on their own subjects, like on their own armed men, just to see like, does this poison gas work? How about this gas mask? What happens if we use this mask and that gas? What's going to happen? The army tests its gases on at least 60,000 men, uniformed men. And a lot of them are Puerto Rican because the army is just like, yeah, they're not good for fighting, but they're great for testing gases on. And so there's this really damaging program where the army is just taking its men and gassing them, sometimes putting them in gas chambers with gas masks to see what happens, see how long they can stand up, sometimes putting them in the field and gassing them overhead and seeing, you know, how long they can run around and do mock battles. And Cornelius Rhodes is right there, basically just nodding his head, being like, yes, yes, good, good, good. We're learning a lot here. He gets a medal for it. And then at the end of this, because actually the gases are turned out to be sort of chemically and medically interesting, one of the things they do is they can be used to fight cancer. And Cornelius Rhodes figures this out. He's not the only one who does, but he figures it out. He takes this, he runs with it, and then becomes the first director of the Sloan Kettering Institute. He basically becomes a founder of chemotherapy. And on the mainland, Cornelius Rhodes is revered and commemorated as a hero doctor, one of the guys who helped get cancer under control. And despite having this Mengele-like history on the island, None of that sticks on him. And for decades, he is remembered in the medical community only for fighting cancer. And this whole thing, this whole little pre-career, this whole little dalliance he had in Puerto Rico just goes away for him. What happens in San Juan stays in San Juan. Yeah, that is a fascinating story. And I know it's one of the things that this audience is going to be intrigued by. It's really reminiscent of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which is really the only other branded chapter in history that seems similar to this where they tell people they're being treated but instead they're being just monitored and not treated to see like how does this disease run its course and it's very dark and of course when you sign up for the military it's very you know rah rah we're gonna fight for the freedoms of the people but oftentimes history shows that you can sometimes be used as a guinea pig as much as you can be used as a soldier and it's just a lot darker sometimes than, than people realize when you turn over those stones. Yeah, and a lot of those men who are used as guinea pigs don't speak English. We have documents that suggest that a lot of the men who are being tested on don't really understand what's happening. And even those who do speak English, Puerto Rican or not, are clearly not given proper information about what's going to happen to them. And that matters because they literally bear the scars, many of them to their death. People suffer from emphysema, from eye problems, from genital scarring, from psychological damage. It mat you know, getting gassed is a serious, serious business. And for some people, it's just, you know, a scar on your arm and that's it for life. And, you know, that's okay. But for other people, it is an ongoing medical issue. And they're also not allowed to talk about it, right? Like the army forbids them from talking about it because it's a military secret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's so dark, man. It really is. And something else I thought was important in your book that I haven't heard come up in many of your other interviews is the testing that was done on Puerto Rican women concerning birth control and the quest for the almighty pill. And this too gets pretty nefarious, doesn't it? Yeah. So there's this way in which colonies can just serve as laboratories for empires, places to test things out. And you can kind of see why, because from the perspective of the mainland, from the perspective of the imperial leaders, rulers, colonies are places where you can do things and you won't bear the full consequences if they go wrong. You can try things out. You won't have as much oversight. You actually have a lot less resistance because the political processes in colonies tend to shore up 
authoritarian power because these are people without full political representation. And so in my book, I tell a number of stories about professionals, lawyers, architects, doctors, who find that the colonies are actually really congenial places to work and to try things out, to try out bold experiments, which is one reason why colonies are so important to U.S. history, because a lot of stuff gets tested out in them. But as you say, it's a dark history. And in Puerto Rico's case, there is just a kind of affinity between Puerto Rico and particularly medical testing. There's a lot of medical stuff that gets tested on Puerto Rico. It's not just these anemia experiments. It's not just the poison gas that gets tested, not in Puerto Rico, but on Puerto Ricans. But it's also birth control. One of the things that mainlanders keep saying about Puerto Rico is all of its problems are because women just keep having too much babies. The island is overpopulated. It's not like more densely populated than New Jersey. But nevertheless, from the perspective of the mainland, you know, it's like there are just too many Puerto Ricans. And that's the cause of all the problems. It's the cause of the poverty. That's the cause of the slums. And so there's a lot of medical interest among doctors in keeping Puerto Rican populations down. And so you see this thing where just doctors go to the island and, first of all, perform sterilizations on women. It's just like record, unprecedented numbers. And, you know, you know, it seems like some of the women wanted to get sterilized, but it still feels a little weird when you just look at how disproportionately Puerto Rican women are sterilized compared to women in everywhere else. But the birth control pill is also tested in Puerto Rico. Back in the bad old days before they got the dosage right, the dosage was way too high. It was tested largely on Puerto Rican women. And the accounts that we have are kind of painful to read because what you'll see is you'll see the on-the-spot medical professionals, nurses and doctors saying, okay, we're running the test, we're giving this pill to women, and they're suffering headaches, they're vomiting, they're experiencing cervical erosion. Like, it is a really hard pill to be taking. And then you see the doctors who are overseeing this coming from the mainland being like, ah, you know, Puerto Rican women just complain a lot. They're hysterical. They're always going to complain. The pill's working fine, whatever they're saying. And then they start running experiments where despite the fact that they know these side effects are likely because they've already been testing it, they decide not to tell women about the side effects. So not informed consent on the theory that if you tell Puerto Rican women that they might experience side effects, they're so hysterical that they're just going to report that they're experiencing side effects. So the pill gets tested and the pill gets approved with this like crazy dosage, basically because doctors are unwilling to look at Puerto Rican women and take their medical complaints seriously. Then after it starts getting used more broadly, the dosage gets brought in hand. But that's what makes the pill happen. And the, I mean, the pill is such a huge event in the demographic and cultural history, not just of the United States, but of the world. But Puerto Rico is a testing ground for it. And not just the pill, but a number of contraceptives get tested first in Puerto Rico before they're brought onto the market. Mm. Man, it is just so shocking. And I do believe John Oliver not long ago did a piece about black women today having a very similar problem going to the doctor saying we have this issue and kind of just being dismissed kind of that same racist attitude of like, you don't even know what's wrong with yourself, you're fine. And it's really just difficult to read these sources and just think about what that must have felt like to be in that position. And you can also, and this is tricky to contemplate too, but you can also imagine that from the perspective of doctors, patients, particularly experimental patients, whose pain you can dismiss, you know, whose pain you can greet with just being like, nah, you'll be fine. That's kind of convenient in some ways for doctors, at least for the doctors who are more interested in testing drugs, running experiments than on, you know, really being there with their patients and healing them and listening to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I wanted to grab one quote here from the section where you are talking about 
this contraception and pill testing in Puerto Rico, where you say when it comes to the pill, the first experiment used medical students at the University of Puerto Rico. Despite having their grades held hostage to their participation in the study, half of them dropped out. And then you go on to say that they tried prisoners next, and then they went to the housing projects. Got to get the poor involved. But to encourage students to be guinea pigs like that is insanely cruel. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's more cruel with students or with people in housing projects or prisoners, but it is. I mean, yeah, so what you just imagine is these students who are in medical school and they're told, we're going to run a test on you and this is part of your class participation. And, you know, you might not finish medical school or you might fail this class if you refuse to participate in this test. Open up. Here's a pill. Oh, are you vomiting now? Like, yeah, sorry. And we don't or I don't know the full story of those women. Right. Some of them might have dropped out for other reasons. We just know that, like, the experimental numbers went way down. But it's it seems really likely that a number of them dropped out because taking the pill was awful or at least taking the pill was awful in those days of that dosage. Mm hmm. And it is just so sad because while a lot of these places we're talking about are or were under the control of the U.S., they definitely were kept at arm's length, like you said, using legalese and using terms like colony or territory. And it is these distinctions that sort of justify the actions in these places, right? I mean, these terms actually have huge implications that even go beyond this medical experimentation thing and even just our perception of how bad some of these crimes really are. So let's talk about the terms for a second, because the United States has an interesting way of talking about or of not talking about its empire. The usual word, the standard word for overseas places that have different laws that are politically subordinated, that have a people who are understood as different from the perspective of the center of power, the usual word for that is colony. And if you're a country that has colonies, you're an empire. And right when the United States grabs a bunch of these places, a bunch of colonies, during and after 1898, there's this kind of imperial shopping spree that goes on. At that moment, there's this brief window where leading men just say it outright. They're like, yep, the United States is an empire. We've got colonies. That's a great thing or that's a bad thing. But we're completely open about that fact. So Teddy Roosevelt talks about it like that. Woodrow Wilson talks about it like that. It's not a secret. But then, you know, after about a decade or so, you start to see officials stop using the C word, colony, and start going for other euphemisms. They get sort of mealy-mouthed when they start talking about what's going on. They say territory. Territory is a gentler word, and it also, you know, has a kind of happy history for the United States. Kansas was a territory. Montana was a territory. And then they became states. So being a territory doesn't, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing in the United States. It just might mean you're not yet a state. So territory is a word they tend to go for instead of colony, or they just don't talk about it. One thing that I've encountered when I talk to readers about my book, especially readers who haven't yet read it, is that they get a little confused, just like in their mouth when they're trying to talk about places like Puerto Rico or Guam, because they don't really know the names for these political relationships. And so they use circumlocutions and that kind of thing. And I think that's a really interesting fact about the United States is that the basic fact of empire, the basic fact of colonies has become so obscured that it actually is difficult to speak about. And a really good example of that is how we use the word United States. So most people, when they use the word United States, refer to the states. 
And so then it gets very confusing when they're trying to talk about the U.S. Virgin Islands, which has United States in the name. It's quite clearly part of the United States. But does it fit? I don't know. So like when the 2017 hurricanes were approaching the U.S. Virgin Islands, you'd see newscasters saying the hurricanes are first going to hit the U.S. Virgin Islands and then they're going to hit the United States. And then you get people from like St. Thomas being like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? That actually makes no sense. But it's because you don't really know the word mainland that you can say they're approaching the U.S. Virgin Islands and then they're going to hit the U.S. mainland. That's a way to say it that actually makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. All that is really important, and I definitely found myself getting tripped up on the right words and phrases just trying to prepare for this. And on the subject of language, you have a chapter called Language is a Virus that I really liked too. Not only the campaign to get English adopted around the world and tracking that progress, which Hollywood and now the internet has helped a great deal, but we've often heard that when an empire colonizes a place, one of the first things it builds is schools. So it can start the process of westernization, which, you know, is also something you can frame in a positive light. But when you get into the details, it's quite dark. You've got stories in the book of people saying that they would get beaten as kids for using their native tongue in some cases. They're forced to celebrate their colonization day as a holiday. They're forced to celebrate the birthdays of U.S. presidents. I mean, this stuff erodes a culture. I mean, that's what they're really doing, although they can frame it in this positive, altruistic light of education. Yeah. So the United States has done something extraordinary, and it hasn't just done it through its formal colonies. I mean, what's extraordinary is that it's done it even beyond its formal colonies. It has promulgated English to the point where English is a global language. And obviously, the United States is not the only powerful country that speaks English. Britain is as well. But it's been under the United States' watch. Actually, it's really recent that English has hit the tipping point and become a truly global language where everyone is expected, if they're going to be in a conversation, in an elite conversation somewhere around the planet, that they're going to have to do it in English or they're going to be expected to speak at least a little English. That's something that's happened under the United States' watch. And you can see the start of it as the United States tries to push English in its own colonies. And it has some success and some failure. It turns out it's really hard to get people to speak a language against their will. And the fact that Puerto Rico is still Spanish-speaking and English is not fully spoken in Puerto Rico is a really good example of how hard that can be. And you're absolutely right. Sometimes that difficulty in pushing a language has been responded to by U.S. colonial leaders by using force. So they'll take kids in schools and literally wash their mouths out with soap if they hear native languages spoken. There's beatings. We have an account of a naval officer in Guam getting all of the English Chamorro dictionaries he could find and burning them because why would you translate between English and Chamorro? You shouldn't even be able to do that. We should just be speaking English here. It's a difficult business and it's a kind of painful one to when you actually realize like what it took to get somewhere like the Philippines onto English. It's interesting history. And to talk about something a bit lighter, tell us about the Guano Islands. This is pretty fascinating stuff that I don't think many people have heard about. I'm glad that you brought that up, partly because, look, you can't write a history about empire and colonialism without it being something of a dark story, right? This is not the greatest form of government. It's profoundly undemocratic and all kinds of baleful consequences ensue. But this book is not intended as a litany about every awful thing that the United States has ever done. Uh, it's rather a book that tries to tell you how important empire has been and how variegated the experiences have been 
So there are some chapters that are a little lighter in tone. And one of them is this sort of comic tale of the seizure of Guano Island. So the United States in the 19th century kept planting the same crops over and over in the same land because it was trying to transition to industrial agriculture. So like wheat, cotton, tobacco. And it turns out that if you do that, you quickly drain all the nutrients out of the soil, particularly nitrates. And, you know, they didn't have artificial fertilizer back then. So there was a, like a scramble for ways to replenish and restore particularly nitrates to the soil. And it's, that's a hard thing to do, especially when you're doing industrial agriculture, where you're not doing crop rotation, where you don't always have animals to sort of eat crops and then poop nitrates back out on top of them. And it turns out one of the things that was really good for this is guano. Guano can either meet bird or bat droppings used as fertilizer. But there are these islands in the Pacific and the Caribbean that are, here's what you want to get a guano island. You want a small island that is dry, so it doesn't rain on the island a lot. But nevertheless, there are a lot of birds on it. So the birds will go into the ocean, they'll eat anchovies or whatever they're going to eat, they'll come back on the island, they'll poop on the islands. It won't rain, so the poop will just pile up for not just decades, but millennia. And, you know, it's basically the entire island is like made of shit, hardened shit. And that is a really good fertilizer. So in the 19th century, U.S. farmers figure this out and start really trying to buy up guano. And then it turns out like Peru has a lock on all the really good guano islands. And there's a British monopoly that keeps jacking up the prices for that Peruvian guano. So the United States is like, wow, this is like OPEC. This is like the oil crisis of the 1970s. One of the most important substances to make this economy go is guano, and we need it, and it's too expensive. So they just start claiming islands everywhere, uninhabited islands that are guano islands. The United States overall takes nearly 100 of them, and these are the first times that the United States goes overseas. It's just these like islands that are spread all over the Caribbean and the Pacific. You know, They would talk to whalers. You know, Did you pass an island when you were out on your whaling expedition? Was it covered in shit? Do you remember where it was? Can you show me on a map? We're going to go out there. We're going to scrape all that shit off and just bring it back. So, you know, I mean, there's something just like ridiculous about this, but it's also serious because all of the legal questions that come up about having an empire get first worked out on these shit-covered, uninhabited islands because all the, you know, it's like constitutionally, can the United States extend overseas? How does U.S. law work if you're on one of these islands and not in a state or in an organized territory? All those questions come up immediately. And actually, the, you know, you can say the foundation of the United States' colonial empire is shit. <laughs> I like it. And I hate to pile on, no pun intended, more darkness to our one light and fun chapter of this whole book. But you also talk about the Navasa Phosphate Company, which is another one of these Little companies that would promise the world and tell people about the bountiful land, the paradise they'll be living in. Oh, the women. You're going to love the women. And they would ship over African-American labor. And this was a bunch of lies. This is a bunch of poor treatment. Some of these people are illiterate and told to sign terrible one-sided contracts. And we're right back to uh, abuses of the people lower on the totem pole, but it comes into play here too, doesn't it? Yeah. So let's talk about why this needs to happen or from the perspective of the Nevada Phosphate Company. It's cool to have a guano island, but you need someone to scrape that guano off the island. And these are uninhabited islands, so you need to bring laborers over. 
And it turns out that scraping and mining guano off of Guano Island is, and I checked this with my fellow historians, so I'm confident saying it, the worst job you can have in the 19th century. <laughs> because it's basically like coal mining and all the lung damage you get from that, except to do it, you're on a rainless remote island and you just have to stay there. You're basically marooned at your workplace. And, you know, there's often not fresh water. And you're, you're eating what they called hardtack, which is, you know, dried, it's like jerky, dried meat. And people get all kinds of intestinal distress. And then they're having it on the island. And there's no plumbing. It, it is a bad situation. Also, the guano itself is really, it's like ammonia. It's like very pungent. So if you breathe in too much of that, it's horrible for your respiratory system. So this is a bad situation. Anyway. It basically turns out that it's not easy to get laborers to agree to do this under terms of full consent. So in the Pacific, there's a lot of Chinese workers who are basically kidnapped from China. They're, you know, it's like, do you want to come check out my boat? And then you're like on the boat as the worker. And then they're like, oh, we're sailing now. We're on the island. All right, I guess you got to work. And in parts of the Pacific, they use Hawaiians to mine it. In the Caribbean, and especially on the Vasa Islands, the Navasa Phosphate Company uses African-Americans and they trick them onto the boats. They basically like, just as you said, you're going to be living on a tropical island, picking fruit and romancing beautiful women. Just sign the dotted line and step on the boat and that'll be it. And then, you know, they step off the boat and suddenly they're deeply in debt because they've been charged for their own voyage over. They have to pay ridiculously inflated prices for Korean food. And then they're on a dry island that is absolutely miserable. It's called Devil's Island, this particular island. And they have to work mining guano. So not surprisingly, some of them mutiny, revolt. They get in a fight and they end up killing five of their white overseers. And, you know, it's national news, right? Because like five white men have been killed by black people. And the national news is not, does not cut in these men's favor. It's not like oppressed workers stand up for justice. It's like black butchers murder you know, innocent white people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're hauled back to the mainland, particularly to Baltimore, where a lot of them come from. And they're going to be tried in the court. And the black community in Baltimore just rallies behind them. It's like, okay, we got to help these guys out. And they get this guy who is the first black lawyer to have passed the Maryland bar. And he's on the legal team. And they come up with this kind of extraordinary argument. First, they say the obvious stuff. They're like, these workers are horrifically oppressed. Like, you can hardly believe it. So it's kind of understandable why they got in a fight. But then they say something else. They say, look, these men cannot be convicted of murder in a U.S. court. You're like, hmm, interesting. Okay, why can't they be convicted of murder? And they say, because this event didn't happen in the United States. The Guano Islands are not really part of the United States. So these men are not under U.S. jurisdiction. They're foreign, not domestic. And so U.S. courts can't try them. I mean, that's a really interesting argument because that is putting to the question the constitutionality of empire. Are these places really part of the United States or not? It goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has to think about it. And the court decides, okay, yeah, these islands are part of the United States, which then means that the United States can indeed expand overseas. But then that raises other questions. Well, if they're part of the United States, what court has them under its local jurisdiction? Where were these men supposed to go to complain about the labor abuses? Like, you can't just have a little island out there that's under no jurisdiction or under no local jurisdiction. So as I said, the legal foundation for empire is worked out on the backs of these men who are ultimately convicted of murder. First, they're sentenced to death and their sentence gets commuted because people are so outraged by the conditions under which they were working. But nevertheless, once that sentence is commuted, they're still doing time. And they're not just doing time. They're also doing hard labor. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting story. I'd heard basically nothing about. But that idea of making 
the lawmakers actually think about the status of these places is really compelling because this also kind of comes up with Guantanamo Bay. I mean, that is a really odd case. It's in Cuba. We had an embargo against Cuba for decades. Castro would not recognize the lease and never cashed the annual $4,000 check that they sent. I thought that was a nice detail. But it just seems like a odd situation. If the U.S. won't leave and they're not wanted there, is it sovereign? Is it an occupation? I mean, these are curious questions. Yeah, and that curiosity is not just an accident. That's how empires work. Empires usually have these complicated jurisdictions because those are enabling from the perspective of the empire. Guantanamo Bay has been, from the perspective of Washington, kind of an awesome place. And part of its utility is that no one really knows about whose jurisdiction it's in. So technically it's Cuban, it's under Cuban sovereignty, but the United States has a lease that gives it all the power that it would have if it were a sovereign, even though it's not the sovereign. And then Cuba wants to eject it, but the United States doesn't let it. So what kind of a rental situation is that? It seems more like squatting than renting. But think about that from the perspective of the Bush administration. They're like, okay, we would like a space that we control completely and yet that is not subject to U.S. law. Guantanamo Bay is the space. That's like a perfect legal solution. And Guantanamo Bay isn't the only space, you know, in the U.S. empire that has that nebulous quality where it's like all these legal anomalies abound. Places that are legally anomalous can turn out to be really useful. I mean, there's a reason that like so much wealth internationally is stored in Bahamas and British Virgin Islands and all these offshore jurisdictions because places like that these little loopholes, standing loopholes, become really important for powerful people to do what they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess I want to ask you as we're wrapping this thing up, do you have any goals or hopes for this book beyond just the education? What would you like to see people do with this information? Well, it's mainly a work of history, and I want particularly people who live in the U.S. mainland to just remap their own country to get a better map of where they think they're living and to understand that it's not just the mainland. But I think that also matters today. It's not just me being a historian complaining that, you know, the kids these days don't know history and aren't getting it right. Uh-huh. The United States has five inhabited territories now. The U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Millions of people live in them. And in the last two years, four out of these five territories have been threatened to the like existentially threatened by well what hurricanes in the case of the US Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico a typhoon which is actually the worst storm to hit the United States since the 1930s typhoon U2 which i'm suspecting that a lot of people don't even know about in your audience that hit the northern marianas in 2018 and you know guam as you recall was threatened by north korea credibly threatened by north korea which said, you know, if the United States keeps up its overflights, which are launched from Guam over the Korean Peninsula, North Korea will surround Guam with an enveloping fire. The U.S. mainland is kind of hard to hit with a missile from North Korea. Guam's a lot easier to hit, and it's a lot closer by, and it's a pretty good target. So that's four of the five inhabited territories that have been threatened with something resembling obliteration in the last two years. And that's going to keep happening. I mean, I think as climate change gets worse and U.S. alliances fray, these are the places that are going to be on the line. I mean, the overseas parts of the United States have been the front lines of its history 
for a long time. And this is going to continue to be the case today. And I think at this point, it just feels urgent and embarrassing and painful and exasperating that after all this, the United States still really hasn't gotten right on the issue of empire. And I think we are long overdue for some conversations about status of the overseas territories, about whether the Constitution applies to them, which currently it does not fully, and frankly, about the U.S. military bases, which still, you know, there are still hundreds of them all over the world and which, you know, kick up the same kind of protests that they did in the days of Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. If empire is going to claim these areas as their own, then we kind of owe it to them to try to bring Big Daddy in when it's actually needed for once rather than uh, when it's not. And I guess one last thing I wanted to bring up that kind of relates to what to do with this information, I wanted to touch on your other book, Thinking Small, The United States and the Lure of Community Development. I didn't get to read it, but some lines from the description say, Thinking Small tells the story of how the United States sought to rescue the world from poverty through small-scale community-based approaches, and it also sounds a warning. Such strategies, now again in vogue, have been tried before with often disastrous consequences. Thinking small challenges those who hope to eradicate poverty to think twice about the risks as well as the benefits of community development. There is that tendency. A lot of people say that it's a major component of the the liberal party in America that, oh, we actually need to help these people because they can't help themselves. It seems like that's kind of a thread that is getting touched on in this book, Thinking Small. The books seem kind of related, but I guess if people might be interested in that side of things, what would you say to people about the overall message in Thinking Small and how it relates to the things we've been talking about today? I teach at Northwestern, and I've got a lot of students here who you know, are really well-intentioned. And one thing that they often want to do is join the Peace Corps, you know, go out and work with poor people in villages. And I get it. Like, it's such a tempting thing from the perspective of these students. You know, there are poor people. I want to help. I want to know that world. And, you know, I want to share whatever expertise I have with them. And I guess two things. I mean, one is the book talks a lot about the history of that, including the history of the Peace Corps, but of all these other predecessors to that, where the United States would try to resolve poverty by sending out some well-intentioned men and women who are willing to roll up their sleeves and get their knees muddy and, you know, help build a hut or something like that. First of all, I mean, I still see that as a kind of form of hubris, right? Yeah. Why would you think that, you know, sending a Dartmouth graduate, you know, out to some Kenyan village is going to really help matters? Wouldn't a Kenyan person be a better expert yes. on how to deal with Kenya, especially when they don't speak the language, which is often true? So that's one thing. But more importantly is this. It's so tempting, right? Because we love communities. You know, we think that the modern world has gotten too big and, you know, we have genetically modified food and, you know, these like office parks and suburbs and we used to just live in small communities. And, you know, this focus on the small and the obsession with this grassroots as a way of fixing everything, I think often shifts the blame. Because if you go to a village and you're like, okay, well, what are the problems? You're going to see village-sized problems. Okay, well, we should put a drinking well there and that would help. And, you know, drinking wells are cool. That's great. But if you want to know why people are poor, it's not usually that there's not a drinking well right there. It's usually that there's a large global system that is drastically unfair, that transmits benefits to some people and deprives others of them, that seals borders against people who would very much like to move to areas that are a little more profitable than others. 
And that is, at this time, heating up the planet to the point where anyone who's you know, living outside of those privileged parts is going to have a more and more difficult time just, just subsisting and living. And there's going to be more conflict and there's going to be less water. Those strike me as the real issues. And rather than this just like, should there be a well here? You know, rather than asking when, you know, confronting the problem of poverty, how can we help these people? You might ask, what have we been doing to these people? And so to the degree that How to Hide an Empire, my new book, is about empire, it's about kind of taking responsibility, in this case of the United States, for the effects of its actions. And that other book, Thinking Small, is trying to do the same thing, right? Asking people in the United States to look at global poverty and not just see, you know, an occasion for help and building a CV line, but as an occasion to think deeply about the larger forces that privilege, you know, often intentionally so, that privilege the United States and that have, you know, helped uh, lock other places into poverty. Mm. Amen, man. Yes, it is kind of a condescending thing to hear about a small injustice and then immediately jump to, well, how can we help? You know, there's a lot of white knights out there. And really, sometimes the answer is just back off or get the corporations out of here and we'll be fine. Uh, so I do I do like the synergy between those two books. And I thought that was an important thing to throw in there. And Right on. This has been a lot of fun, man. I mean, super insightful. How to Hide an Empire should be on everyone's shelf. There's plenty of stuff in there we didn't get to talk about. Before I really cut you loose, is there anything more to tell the people about upcoming projects or your website or social media platforms they can find you on? Yeah, I was on Twitter briefly and then it got a little much, so I'm, I'm not active right now. But I've got a website and I do a lot of writing that goes beyond this. So I, you know, I write for magazines and I had a piece on Jared Diamond, the author, recently. I turned out to be a little critical of him. So, yeah, the book is the main thing, How to Hide an Empire. But I've got a lot of other stuff on the website, and anyone is uh, welcome to visit it and see what they see. Very cool. Well, it has been a real pleasure talking to you today, man. I know it's a marathon session around here, so thanks for your time. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And boom goes the dynamite, dear people. Daniel Emmervar dropping a unique kind of knowledge. Another one that I knew would be well-received and was excited to release. And I'm sure you guys have picked up on my desire over the last couple of months to cover this sort of space a little bit better. We circled around it a little with Natalia Forty and again with Whitney Webb before her Epstein coverage. But when I saw this book was coming out, I was really, really hoping that THC didn't scare him off. And here we are. So kudos to him for his willingness. Because if we really care about the disenfranchised and the voiceless victims of Empire... We should highlight these stories because they definitely help make our case. More so than most things that you're going to talk about within the American bubble. Or should I say American blob. But we have a lot of people out there, friends and family, who might still blindly trust the system or think that it's there to protect them or to make their lives easier. That the game isn't rigged. That the system isn't that corrupt. Hmm. Well, it's harder for someone to drink the Kool-Aid with this plan at the party, you know what I'm saying? To hear these chapters of hidden history or suppressed history should be pretty eye-opening. And it's also not something you have to debate with someone. 
I doubt the conversations you'd have around this episode would contain as much, well, that didn't happen, as the ones based around the more hot-button topics might. And I want to refrain from going too far outside the parameters of today's episode out of respect for our guests, because I don't want them to feel uncomfortable with how I'm kind of extrapolating out from what we heard today, because I would guess that he might say that I take things too far. Guilty. (laughs) But there is this sentiment that I talk with my buddy Darrell about quite often, that If you want to summarize what white privilege is, it's drinking the Kool-Aid that politicians care and government is there to serve you, that they're doing the best they can, and corruption couldn't be as deep as I might say it is, or we'd hear about it on the news. Just believing the whole illusion, that's pretty much all naive white people shit. Because the rest of the people out there have, unfortunately, gotten a closer look at the true colors of the big machine. It's why when I worked at the Great American Cookie in the Columbia Mall, the guys I got along with best were the workers at Foot Locker and Lady Foot Locker. What do you think we bonded over? Sports? No, we got talking about politics and corruption, etc., etc. And they thought, hey, he doesn't know anything about basketball, but this guy's all right. I guess I'm just saying, if we don't consider ourselves part of the human family first, then people like Cornelius Rhodes become tolerable because what he was doing was in Puerto Rico and not Kansas. And if you want to talk about dark aspects of the medical system, there are other testing microcosms we could talk about, like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. It's all good history to know. and like building a case for some of the more extreme opinions of our other guests, you have to, as they say, establish a pattern of behavior. And the next time someone says, well, they wouldn't do that, you can simply point out the things they have done that nobody is debating, and I think those things alone will speak volumes. But I really did try to keep my crazy in today because I care too much about the actual content of the book Daniel wrote, and I also respect his path in academia, even if it hasn't been mine. The stuff about the Philippines and Pearl Harbor was great and eye-opening. Of course, the reckless medical testing in Puerto Rico was key, and his own personal family connection to some of this was also surprising and interesting but I think that was in the second hour. Regardless, you should all be very well stuffed from all the food for thought today. And I just can't get over the fact that Cornelius Rhodes, he did what he did. He worked for the Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research for a decade and was the first director of the Sloan Kettering Institute and the first director of the Combined Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Plus, the story of how chemotherapy was derived is a bit troublesome, but I'm not really insinuating anything further. Those are just facts. And maybe he is an isolated incident to some degree. It's not for me to say. But a huge appreciation to Daniel for highlighting these pieces of history and for writing his book. 
Of course, even just the first hour of this interview is full of things that I didn't know that I'm glad I know now. And that's also true right on through the second hour as well. We talked about several other aspects of his book, How to Hide an Empire, such as using colonies as sacrifice zones, the contentious relationship between the founding fathers and the frontiersmen. I thought that was fascinating. The lost history of Sequoia and the integration of Cherokee Nation. Did you know they even had their own newspaper? They were trying to play ball. They came to the game. And sadly, it seems that the system just said no. We also talked about Daniel's thoughts on the intentionality behind the spread of smallpox in the New World, the effects of empire on Daniel's own family tree, as I mentioned, and the ever-important underlying depth of the Godzilla franchise. Lots of diverse material, Guano Islands as well. That early America stuff was also just some of my favorite. But anyway, you know the drill. We offer the first hour with no strings or sponsors attached, and if you want to support what I do, if you see the value in its continued existence in the endless sea of options, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus and get an extra hour of our very deep and varied shows, including a long archive that goes further back than you know. And that said, in higher side news, I think the joint session this month is going to be on the 20th. Again, 7 p.m. Pacific time. I will keep you reminded as we get closer to it. And with that, I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, pawns of empire, agents of the elite, and gears of the big machine. Your fucking move. Oh no. You see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. A nine to five is trying to steal ya, now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings from some spying agency? Wish we were younger and free. I'll be thankful when it's all exposed. The vast conspiracy, there's such a difference between us and the dead.
Time. 